0: Have you ever actually given thought, any thought, as to how you want to die? Now, there's an opening line. Now, <laughs> uh, you heard me right. Have you ever considered how you might like to finish this race? Not that any one of us really has much to say about that. I'm not talking about determining to take your own life by which by the way the Bible absolutely forbids Brittany Maynard notwithstanding If you don't know who Brittany was a 29-year-old woman diagnosed with terminal brain cancer who sparked worldwide controversy by deciding that on November 1st in 2014 in Portland Oregon two days after her husband's birthday surrounded by her loved ones that she would end her life on her terms by taking a fatal dose of medication prescribed by our doctor. But that's not what I'm talking about. Thinking about the way you want to die is not something that most people contemplate very often. And the reason is obvious. Most people don't want to die. That's why the opening line of a chapter in a book I recently read kind of grabbed my attention. The author, also a pastor, in the Washington, D.C. area, wrote the following. He said, a few years ago, I figured out how I wanted to die. I know that sounds morbid and demands some explanation, so let me tell you how I came to my conclusion. I was reading about a man named Wilson Bentley, and I had never heard of him before. We have virtually nothing in common. And he died long before I was born, but when I discovered how he died, I determined that I want to die in the same way Wilson Bentley died. Wilson grew up on a farm in Jericho, Vermont, and as a young boy, he developed a fascination with snowflakes. Obsession might be a better word for it. Most people go indoors during snowstorms, not Wilson. He would run outside when the flakes started falling, catch them on black velvet, look at them under a microscope, and take photographs of them before they melted away. He first photomicrograph. His first photomicrograph of a snowflake was taken on January 15, 1885. Under the microscope, he said, "I found that snowflakes were miracles of beauty, and it seemed a shame that this beauty should not be seen and appreciated by others. Every crystal was a masterpiece of design, and no one design was ever repeated. When a snowflake melted, the design was forever lost." That much beauty was gone without leaving any record behind. The first known photograph of snowflakes, Wilson pursued his passion, photographer of snowflakes. Wilson pursued this passion of his for more than 50 years. He amassed a collection, get this, of 5,381 photographs of snowflakes. and It was published in his magnum opus titled Snow Crystals. And then, the author says he died a fitting death, a death that symbolized and epitomized his life. Wilson Snowflake Bentley contracted pneumonia while walking six miles through a severe snowstorm and died on December 23, 1931. The author says, and that is how I figured out how I want to die. No, I don't want to die from pneumonia, but I do want to die doing what I love. I am determined to pursue God ordained passions until I die. Life is too precious to settle for anything less, he says. I'm not convinced that your date of death is the date carved on your tombstone. Most people die long before that. We start dying when we have nothing to live for. And we don't really start living until we find something worth dying for. Ironically, discovering something worth dying for is exactly what makes life worth living. Interesting thoughts. In a way, I guess you could say that the Apostle Paul understood that kind of passionate living but it wasn't a passion for his own self-advancement. It may have been at one time, but after a very dramatic encounter with Jesus on a back road to Damascus, Paul's passion was transformed into something far beyond even what he could fathom. Turn to Philippians chapter 3 again, if you would. Let's refresh our memories on this text that we're working through, beginning in the second part of verse 4 in Philippians 3. Paul says, If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I've counted as lost for the sake of Christ, That I may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let us, therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude, and if, any, if anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. However, let us keep living by the same standard to which we have attained. Let's just stop there for right now. Last week I suggested to you the idea that God has given us each one of us a coin called life. You could spend it any way you want to, but you can only spend it once. And choosing this one thing in life to pursue, one thing that outdistances all the others, is possibly the most difficult challenge that you and I face. The Apostle Paul seemed to have had a definitive understanding that for him, the most important thing, and for us, that we could ever pursue in this life is to truly and intimately know the person of Jesus Christ and to keep pressing on in order to become like him. In light of that, I ask that we make the words of Hosea 6.3 our unceasing prayer, so let us Press, let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. That, in a minimal amount of words, is the message of Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 to 21. Pressing on to the perfection of Christ's likeness means that we need to adjust our pattern of life. And in our pursuit of Christian maturity, one of the first principles we need to adopt was this learn how to leave the past, as we said last week. Need a new set of values. And we need to recognize that as we pursue Christ-likeness, our confidence cannot be in ourselves, right? We need to recognize that as we pursue Christ's likeness our confidence must be in Christ and in Him alone. So as Paul grew more mature in Christ, the less confident he became in himself, Paul had to learn how to leave his past. The credentials that he listed here, that he once thought were the most important things in this life, faded into oblivion in comparison to one thing: the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ as Lord. Now, if he was going to know Christ and all that that entailed—the power of His resurrection, the fellowship of His suffering—it, Paul was going to attain. To the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, he had to let go of his false security and all that once comprised of his self-proclaimed identity. That's what we learned last week. He had to throw down his staff. Remember we talked about Moses throwing down his staff, and we have to do the same thing. It takes not only confidence in Christ, but commitment to Him beyond what we believe that we can give. The term we used was surrender, surrender. And so it's not enough to simply learn how to leave the past, but I left you with this thought last week, that we need to learn how to live in the present as well. We need a new sense of vitality, a new sense of vigor in pursuing Christ in Romans chapter 12, verse 1 says this So, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all that He has done for you. Let them be a living and a holy sacrifice, the kind that He will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship Him. This is your reasonable service, your spiritual worship. And the question then becomes, are we willing to do that? Are you and I willing to do what it takes in order to press on to know Christ fully? Are you willing to lose all or anything for the person of Christ? And as I suggested to you last week, it's not always the giving of all that trips us up, right? What is it? It's the one thing. It's the one thing that holds us back, the specific one thing that we can't give over to Christ. And I challenged each of you to stop and consider what that one thing in your life was. What was it that Christ wanted you to hand over to him, to know him better, to live in sync with his will, to grow deeper in your soul? And last week, many of you took that step. By placing that coin in that basket, you made a symbolic yet very meaningful gesture to hand over that one thing you felt God was calling you to let go of. How quickly did you take it back? Realize that as long as you and I refuse to give up that thing, we forfeit the opportunity to know him that much better. Because in essence, until we do, we cannot truthfully say what Paul says in these verses, verse 8, that we count all things to be lost in view of knowing Christ better. That we may be found in him that we may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering. And so when Paul speaks about knowing Christ in this passage, he doesn't mean knowing just about him. As I said, he, it means far more than that. It means making the journey with him now. Right now in the present tense. And Paul describes this experience from four distinct and intense Angles, and this is where we're taking off on new stuff from last week. Paul says, number one, it's a personal experience. It's a personal experience. Look at verse 10. Paul says, that I may know him. That I may know him. What do you think it means to know Christ? Christ. It means to have a personal, ongoing relationship with him. It's not just a one-time encounter, right? It means that you're not just a name dropper. Don't name droppers drive you insane? You know they don't really know the person that they're talking about. They're just trying to impress you. And the hard reality is that there's a load of people in the church who are just dropping Christ's name around to impress others when in truth they have never, ever made his acquaintance. That's a scary thought, isn't it? And it nevertheless, it's true. Read Matthew chapter 7 when Jesus said, hey, look, you know, you performed all these things in my name, but I never knew you. Scariest verse in the Bible to me. He never made his acquaintance. There's no connection. Knowing Christ means walking with Christ. It means carrying on conversations with Christ. It means obeying him, loving him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It means introducing others to him and helping others to become like him. Listen, friends, you cannot impart what you do not possess. Possess. You cannot impart what you do not possess. You cannot introduce someone to a person that you don't even know yourself. Can you? Not with any reality or authenticity. Knowing Christ, Paul says, is a personal experience. and Then he goes on to say, secondly, that it's a powerful experience. In verse 10 again, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Galatians chapter... 2 and verse 20. You know this verse. Many of you, it may even be a life's verse. Galatians 2:20, Paul says that I am crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but what? Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up. For me. That's a powerful experience, Paul says. I've died, but Christ lives inside of me. That's to know the power of his resurrection. He talks about it also in in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 20. He he explodes with this resounding praise, and he says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we can ask or we can think, according to the power that works within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Jesus Christ to all generations forever and ever. Amen. That's power. Paul says it's a personal experience. It's a powerful experience. And then thirdly, this is the one we want to forget and write right out of this text altogether. It is a painful experience. Look at verse 10 again. That I may know him. How many of you prayed this prayer? That I may know him And the power of his resurrection, yes. And the fellowship of his suffering. Being conformed to his death. You pray that prayer? That's a a fearful prayer. Recently, I read one of those blogs that, like this verse, profoundly affected me through its insight and truth, yet I profoundly didn't want to embrace it. You know what I'm talking about? because of its unnerving implications. The blogger's title posed the provocative question. What makes a good year? What makes a good year? He says, he begins, he says, as every sommelier worth his saltine crackers knows, good wine comes from tortured grapes. It is the dusty secret Californian vintners accidentally unearthed that the more the grape has to struggle for survival, the higher the quality of wine that can be gleaned. Thus, arid and gravely, gravelly mountainsides are good for nothing, horticulturally speaking, save for some masochistic grapes. Notably, the Bordeaux varietals. Grapes harvested after a season of long-suffering produce a vintage that insiders will dub a good year. This phenomenon is not an idiosyncrasy of enology alone, but of theology as well. If I ask you what makes a good year in your life, You may reply with one or more of these generic blessings. Tell me if I'm wrong. What makes a good year in your life? Physical health? A career promotion? Relational fulfillment? Financial prosperity or at least solvency? But you'd be wrong. Well, you'd be half wrong. A good year, the author says, is whatever improves our sanctification. I.e., what makes us more like Christ draws us closer to God and increases our usefulness in giving God glory. That is what makes a good year. Now, if I had to choose between a year of ease and happiness or a year of difficulty and disappointment, all things being equal, I would choose the way of comfort, wouldn't you? But all things are not equal. A trial tends to make us more like Christ, more effectively than does comfort and ease. Would you say that's true? Consider how James opens his letter. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, whenever you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect, and complete, lacking in nothing. All trials, from the mild inconvenience of traffic and ingrown toenails, to torturous pain and emotional distress, are used by God, when we allow Him to, to produce in us a spiritual maturity that affects our life now and on into eternity. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 17 would be a great verse to meditate on. For the momentary light afflictions of this, of this life are producing a weight and glory far beyond all comparison, right? Meditate on that verse this week. 2 Corinthians 4:17. And not only do our trials affect us in our eternity, but they bring glory to God, the scripture says. And they are a necessary part of what it means to know Christ fully. And that's the part we want to forget. But interestingly enough, that's the part that Scripture repeats over and over and over again. Back up in Philippians to chapter 1. Remind you again, we've been through this verse already, but how quickly we forget. Philippians chapter 1, verse 29, for you, for to you, Paul says, it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him, but also to, what's it say? Suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. Flip back to the Gospel of John chapter 15 for a moment. John 15. Verse 18. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Some people think, ah, you're just, you're just paranoid. The government's not against Christians, the world's not against Christians. You're just seeing the devil around every corner. Well, that's not what this verse says. And this comes right out of the mouth of Jesus. If the world hated me, it will hate you too. Because you're not of this world. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave's not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep you yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake because they do not know the one who sent me. Matthew chapter 5, Sermon on the Mount. Verses 11 and 12. Jesus said, blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. He says, blessed are you. Rejoice and be glad, he says, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. 2 Timothy 3, verse 12 says, All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And then in 1 Peter chapter 4 Verses 12 to 14, we read these words. Peter says, Dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed. Why is it that every time we see this suffering, Thing for Christ it's accompanied by the words rejoice because you're blessed then it says for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you see it's painful when you are rejected by your friends friends at school friends at work friends in college because you love Jesus it's painful it's painful when you're disowned by your family because of your faith in Christ It's painful when you're ridiculed on your job because you live for him. Yet part of knowing him is all bound up in an understanding of his suffering. It's a painful experience, Paul says, to know Christ. It's going to involve some suffering. But in verse 11, Paul says it's also a promised experience that we come to know Christ. Verse 11 in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 22 says, for just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. We will attain to the resurrection from the dead if we know Christ. It's a promised experience. So, learning how to live in the present means grappling honestly with two major questions. First, am I willing to lose all or even anything for the person of Christ? And secondly, am I willing to lay hold of the purpose of my life for which Christ saved me? Now, that's a big question. Do you want to know what hinders people from growing in Christ? They think they've already arrived. They think they've already arrived. Not to perfection, mind you, but to a place that's good enough. Isn't that true? You find that to be true? And the problem is, is that people that think that they're at that place where it's just good enough, they've lost their appetite for more Christ-likeness. Let me ask you the question, have you? Have you lost that appetite for more Christ-likeness? Do you think that your Christianity is good enough for me right now? Because you know you've lost it when you stop wanting to push yourself beyond what you're comfortable with in your life for Him. And we all get to that point, don't we? I get there, you get there too. When you're satisfied with the Christian you've become, and you don't want no more. And nobody would be willing to stand up and say, I've arrived, would you? None of us would. But yet that's how we act, right? Oh, I'm pretty content. I'm content with going to church and involvement in my little small group. i got a ministry that I lead. I'm content with that. I'm content with getting up here and preaching every Sunday morning and pastoring a church and going to meetings all the time and counseling people and going to the hospital and... Having no time of my own? Yeah, I'm content with that. (laughs) See, everybody, no matter who you are, needs to continue to press forward harder into Christ. This is elementary. Wrap your mind around this, folks. Since Christ is infinite, there will always be more of him to know. Matt Chandler said it this way. If you live to be 170 years old, you haven't even begun to unpack the fullness of who He is. All throughout the Bible, men and women passionately pursued the Lord. Here's the big question. Why don't we? Why are we so easily satisfied? Chandler postulates that for a lot of people, they put all the weight upon the conversion experience. We do that, don't we? We put it all upon coming to Christ with very little expectation for what comes afterward. Why is Paul passionately pursuing Jesus? Look at the verses. Paul says, I want to be found in him. I want to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on. I press on. Why is Paul passionately pursuing Jesus? Why should we continue to pursue him even after our conversion? You know why? Because you and I are broken people. We are really broken, aren't we? It's so helpful here what Paul says. He says, not that I'm already perfect. Instead, he acknowledges that he still struggles, needs to grow in some areas, and must continue to follow Jesus. And he says this, I press on. I press on. And when he says, not that I have already become perfect, you know, that's a no kidding, Paul. Who's perfect? It's not what he's saying. He's saying, not that I've already become mature enough in Christ. That's what that word means. doesn't mean sinless perfection. It means growth to maturity in Christ. This is the Apostle Paul saying, I haven't gotten there yet. Not enough. Got to press on. Any great athlete will tell you that when you lose your vigorous approach and begin to slack off your training, you are finished. Right? Same thing happens in your spiritual life. We tend to get complacent and we lose our vitality. I'd say we become fat and happy, but it's not true. We just get fat, we're not happy. We're not happy. Christians who have lost the will to press on harder for Jesus are not happy people. They are miserable people. They have no desire to run the race anymore. And you know what happens after that? They generally despise those who do. You ever find yourself in that place? It's like you've lost kind of the will or the joy of it. And you don't want to be around people that are really joyful about Jesus. It's like, ugh. Oh. Here we go again. Bad place to be, isn't it? That's a Christian. So how do we keep the fire alive? Well, look at the text. There's five elements that are pretty clear here in Paul's life. And the question is, are they in yours? Let me list these five things for you, okay? Paul says, not that I've already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Five things in those two verses there, those few verses, that Paul says should be in our lives. Number one, A holy dissatisfaction. A holy dissatisfaction. That's in verses 12 and 13. And here's the phrase I want you to remember for that. Not yet. Okay? Haven't gotten there yet. Not even close to being there yet. A.W. Tozer once said that complacency is the deadly foe of all spiritual growth acute desire must be present or there will be no manifestation of Christ to his people. Acute desire, I like that. Acute desire. In other words, you got to want it bad. you got to want Jesus bad. Paul's attitude is an athletic one. There was always one more mountain to climb, one more hill to take for the kingdom of God, always more of Christ to gain, or always more of self to lose. I love that Paul, at the varsity level of maturity in Christ, says, I'm not there yet. He's on the first string, man, and he's saying, I'm not there yet. Is that our attitude Warren Wiersbe says that a sanctified dissatisfaction is the first essential to progress in the Christian race. A holy discontent. Holy dissatisfaction. What if, what if, what if you and I were to adopt the not yet attitude? I'm not there yet. I haven't attained it yet. I haven't accomplished what Christ called me for yet. I don't look, act, or live enough like Jesus yet. Not yet, but someday. Someday, and I'm pressing toward that goal. See, this not-yet attitude annihilates complacency. It invigorates our pursuit of Christ. Someone has written, there's a right way and a wrong way to struggle with sin. The wrong way is to think like this. Let me manage this. Let me control this. I can do this. And then you quote the verse, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. What's the emphasis though? I can do. Right? Let me manage it. Let me control it. In our flesh, we tend to think that our holiness is the result of our spiritual elbow grease. We intellectually know that it's by grace alone. We assent to the doctrine of solo gratia, but we tend to live and act like we're saved by what Don Whitney calls sola bootstrapper, right? I'm going to do it. I'm going to manage it. But that is not the teaching of Scripture, is it? The right way to struggle with sin and the pursuit of holiness could be described like this. Push headlong into Jesus and then keep pushing. That's how you're going to get over your addiction. I mean, I'm I'm not... denigrating, you know, self-help groups or all kinds of counseling that you need. But number one priority, you need to push harder into Jesus and keep on pushing. If we want true joy, true satisfaction, and true peace and holiness, we have no option but to pursue Him. People say, we just need to pursue holiness. Pursue... And I keep saying, don't pursue holiness. Pursue Jesus, and holiness will be the result. Right? Just remember, friends, our passionate pursuit of Christ is the result of his unyielding pursuit of us. Keep that in mind. It was Jesus who pursued us first. Amen? It was Jesus who loved us first. Amen? It was Jesus who chose us first. Amen? And it is in that understanding that we discover the power to keep pressing on toward Him. If He deemed us valuable enough to pursue us, to choose us, and to love us, why shouldn't we be running hard after Him? Who else in this world loves us like that? So, holy dissatisfaction, number one. Number two, we need a wholehearted dedication. Verse 13. One thing I do, Paul says. This one thing I do, right? And then he goes on to list five things. Typical pastor, preacher. Here's the phrase for this one. One thing, okay? We had that phrase last week. This is the flip side of that coin. But one thing I do. One thing ought to be an important phrase for every Christian. Think about the one thing occurrences in the Bible, okay? Okay? One thing you lack, Jesus said to the rich young ruler. Go and sell your possessions. One thing you lack. One thing is needful, Jesus said to a stressed out Martha. One thing is needful. And Mary chose the good part. You need to press harder into me. One thing I know, shouted the blind man that Jesus healed. Once I was blind, but now I see. Right? One thing I have asked from the Lord, and that I shall seek, said the psalmist, right? To behold his beauty, to dwell in his house, inquire at his holy temple. One thing. Some of us are involved in one too many things, maybe 20 too many things. We need to optimize our pursuits, you see. Find out what one thing God has gifted you to do and dedicate yourself to that. Paul says, one thing I do. One thing I do, by the way, is better than 40 things I dabble with. One thing I do in the kingdom of God. It's purported that the colorful 19th century showman and gifted violinist Niccolò Paganini was standing before a packed house playing through a difficult piece of music. A full orchestra surrounded him with magnificent support. Suddenly, one string on his violin snapped and hung gloriously down from his instrument. Beads of perspiration popped out on his forehead. He frowned but continued to play, improvising beautifully. To the conductor's surprise, a second string broke. And shortly thereafter, a third. Now there were three limp strings dangling from Paganini's violin as the master performer completed the difficult composition on one remaining string. The audience jumped to its feet in a good Italian fashion, filled the hall with shouts and screams, Bravo! Bravo! And as the applause died down, the violinist asked the people to sit back down. And even though they knew that there was no way they could expect an encore, They quietly sank back into their seats. He held the violin high for everyone to see. He nodded at the conductor to begin the encore, and then he turned back to the crowd, and with a twinkle in his eye, he smiled and shouted, Paganini and one string. He placed the single-string Stradivarius beneath his chin and played the final piece on one string as the audience and the conductor shook their heads in silent amazement. Paganini and one string. What's your one string? See, it's the opposite of last week. It's like, what's the one thing you need to give up for Christ that he's asking you to let go of? Today, it's a whole different deal. I'm asking you, God's asking you, what's the one string that he wants you to play to his glory? What is it? You can't just do the negative. God's interested in the positive for his glory. What's your one string? The one thing that Christ wants you to do, the one thing he saved you to do, Find out what that is and dedicate yourself to it because pressing on requires a holy dissatisfaction, an unyielding dedication. And then number three, a singularly focused direction. Verse 13 again, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. Phrase here that you want, I want you to remember is from here on in. From here on in. You and I must be finish line oriented, right? What's Hebrews say about Jesus as he goes to the cross? He despised the shame, right? But what was he gazing at? Who for the joy set before him completed it. Finish line oriented. The Christian life is always from here on in. It's not what happened back there. It's about from here on in. The one thing that will diminish future fruitfulness is getting hung up up on past failure. That's why we go back to what Paul started with, and you need to learn how to leave the past behind. Just leave it. Don't go trying to dig it up. Christ has redeemed it. Now, the flip side is that neither can we dwell on past successes, right? You can't live on those trophies forever either. Forget last week. Forget last year. Last night. If we failed, we need to repent, ask forgiveness, and get on with pressing on. Amen? If we've succeeded, we need to praise God and then move on. We can't look back. We can't erase the past from our minds. But in Christ, as John Rice has said, no matter what a man's past may have been, his future is spotless. Is that right? Paul says, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on. And the word forget here doesn't mean that we are to obliterate the past. It means that we're no longer to be bound by that past. Too many people are trying to run the race looking backwards. Wouldn't you say? No wonder they fall. Paul says, stop looking behind you. Focus on the goal. Reach forward. Lunge ahead for the finish line. You know who's standing at the finish line, don't you? The greatest finisher who ever lived. Jesus Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, let us also lay aside every encumbrance in the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes upon Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. You want to be perfect? Follow the perfect one. Along with dissatisfaction, dedication and singularly focused direction, we need number, uh, number four. We need an uncommon determination. Uncommon determination. Verse 14, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I press on. Friends, great athletes don't become winners by watching movies, listening to lectures, and reading books on on the sport. They become winners by getting in the game with the objective of reaching the goal. If you think you will become a spiritually mature believer by coming here, listening to sermons, watching Christian videos, and by reading Christian books, you are sadly mistaken. It's not going to happen. That's like flipping the coin God has given you and being content to leave it there, standing on its edge. Never deciding how you're going to spend it. One way or the other. Folks, the goal is Christ. The prize is to hear his words that say, hey, I know you. I know you. Well done. You've been a good and faithful servant. You ran well. You ran strong. Come on, let's celebrate. Because that's what the Scripture says, right? It's going to happen. We need an uncommon determination and then we need ruthless discipline. Ruthless discipline. Verse 15, let us therefore, as many as are perfect, again, not perfect, sinless perfect, but mature in Christ. Not the ultimate maturity, but mature nonetheless. Have this attitude, and if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. However, let us keep living by the same standard to which we have attained. In other words, don't slide backwards. Don't go backwards. You've matured this far in Christ, move ahead from there. Right? It's not enough to be dissatisfied with the status quo. It's not enough to be dedicated and directed or determined, but you also must be disciplined, Paul says. As one writer put it, nobody stumbles into godliness. They don't, do they? Because we're always going to default to our bent, which is ungodliness. Nobody stumbles into godliness ever. It simply doesn't happen. There is no autopilot mode for the Christian life. You can't, it's just not there. In other words, stop playing games. Stop messing around. Train yourself for godliness, the scripture says. Get serious about reaching your goal. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, the typical verse when we talk about discipline in the Christian life. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24. 24, do you not know that those who run in a race all run? But only one receives the prize. Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we, an imperishable one, Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I've preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Pressing on to perfection means adjusting our pattern of life. Learn how to leave the past. Focus on a new set of values. Learn how to live in the present. Forge ahead with a new sense of vitality and vigor. And then finally, learn to look to the future. And I'm not going to develop this one today. But let's just look at the verses. 17 to 21, Philippians 3. Brethren, join in my following my example and observe those who, have walk, who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk of whom I often told you and now tell you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. Paul says, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself we need to focus on a new vision paul says a new vision and he says you need to do a number of things follow an honorable pattern of life get an example to follow a mentor or whatever and then formulate a heavenly perspective on life remember where you're the who's who, what country you belong to right You're a citizen of heaven, Paul says. Not earth. That was an interesting thing to these Philippians. We'll get into that more next time. But we're citizens of heaven, not this earth. We're loyal to a heavenly cause. We're looking for a heavenly, a Lord who is going to return from heaven. That single-focused vision should change the way we live and motivate us to keep pressing on. Let me close this out. Florence Chadwick. Anybody know that name? Florence Chadwick was a famous and accomplished swimmer. She was the first woman to swim the English Channel both ways. In 1952, she attempted to swim from Catalina Island to the shore of mainland California. And on the day she set out, the weather was so foggy that she could barely see the boats that accompanied her. She swam for 15 hours and was completely exhausted. And she asked to be taken out of the water. But she was told that she was so close that the shore was not far away. Those accompanying her exhorted her, you got to keep going, you're almost there, keep going. You can make it, they pleaded. But finally she just gave up and was pulled up out of the water into the boat She was too exhausted to go on. But when she was taken out, she found and discovered that the shore was only a half a mile away. A half a mile. You know what she told a reporter later on? This is what her words were. Look, she says, I'm not excusing myself, but if I could have seen the land, I might have made it. Two months later, she actually did it. Becoming the first woman to make the swim and breaking the record for the fastest time. Listen, if we're going to press on, you and I need to keep our eyes on the finish line. We need to keep our eyes heavenward. Jesus is our safe haven, and heaven is where Jesus is. And the thought of heaven keeps the believer pressing forward, pressing onward. Folks, this world is not our home. Or is it?